Welcome to yet again another Umbrella Connect podcast. Um, so we are remote today with two astounding gentlemen. Um, but apologies first off because um, Mr. David Downs, I was looking at how I introduced you and realised it was actually quite impossible because the, the LinkedIn profile just doesn't really just doesn't really cut it. So it was, I didn't want to do you do you a misservice. But for those of you um, who have uh, know Mr. David Downs, uh, I've met him virtually a few weeks ago at an NZ hit after works session and uh, it was phenomenal welcome to the umbrella connect podcast. thank you kia ora. nice to be here um and um a familiar voice on umbrella connect is scott arrell who heads up the nz hit network um scott welcome back to another nz hit podcast it's great to have you have you back again yeah, kia ora and uh, hi there david um it's uh, humbling to be sharing this uh, discussion with you no, that's all good. Um, and really, we wanted just to spend a little bit of time talking about um, some positive productivity. And the reason for inviting these two gentlemen on today is to to look at the wealth of uh, articles that are about on the internet today, on LinkedIn, on social media, around all of the positive effects that are coming out um, or are side effects of what is quite a, a dire situation globally with um, this global pandemic that we find ourselves Found, found in. Oh, by the way, happy Level 3 Day to everybody. It's very nice. That's right. Um, you know, there, it's, it's a horrible place for the world to be in, and we're seeing some great stories of individuals and groups of people and communities coming through to drive some really good value for this. But what we are seeing, I believe, as a, as a world and specifically as a nation, some, is some massive positives that relate to people being you know focused at work and focused time and removing digital distraction and just having more you know more ability to get work done under this you know this pressure cooker that we're all in and the question that's come to mind over the whole you know the last last couple of months or so is just why has it taken a global pandemic for people in business to realize that actually we can take more accountability for how we get stuff done and why these positive impacts weren't you know weren't there sooner Um, And it's, it's been playing on my mind and it, and it touched a nerve, David, when we were speaking a few weeks ago and I could see it in the core of what you were saying that the, the, the positive, positivities to come out of where we're at as a society today were, um, you know, you, you touched on them a lot from your personal experiences and from your business experience. But yeah, I mean, um, what are you seeing out of the conversations that you're, you're having, Mr. Mr. Downs? Well, I guess the first thing to, to say, and this is not, you know, I completely agree with you, but and the first thing to say is just to have empathy for people who, for whom that's not true, you know, um, there is an enormous section of our society who are having an, a real difficulty through the COVID crisis. You know, be that small businesses who are shutting down, or employers, or employees who who are missing jobs, or people living in, in housing that's substandard or without access to internet. You know, so there's this is not true for everybody. Um, however, I do agree with you that we're seeing a massive silver lining in this cloud of COVID. Um, and it's really quite surprising. It's showing up in all sorts of surprising ways from things, you know, that I would say the conditions for innovation have never been better in yep. uh, in my lifetime. I look around and go, my God, look how fast things are able to move. Look how quickly we can innovate in healthcare and in, in education and government. Um, all these things, processes and things that used to take us months or years to do have now being, we've found ways to short circuit. I think that's one thing. I mean, productivity, I think certainly from in the, in the parts of, the roles I work in, productivity is really high at the moment. You know, we've, we're seeing really engaged levels of workforce, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we're seeing the benefit of the investment that New Zealand has made for a long time in remote working, for example. Um, 
Yeah, so I actually think, yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a huge lot of silver lining here. As I say, with that big caveat that that's not necessarily true for everyone. And that in itself is something we should discuss later, This this the danger that we're in of in, increasing inequity in New Zealand. Oh, massively. Yeah, absolutely, massively so. And I, I, the, I guess the compounding effects of um, inequality across, you know, all of the regions of New Zealand will become, I, I personally believe, will become more evident. Um, and it has been in, you know, in many older regions. And Scott, from from what you're seeing from the NZ Hit members and the relationships that you have across the industry, um, health has been one thing that's rallied really. Um, its innovation has been exponential in terms of challenging some of the the historic issues around, um, I guess, small pockets of health doing their own approach to the right thing, and now actually being brought to a national level to ta- to, ta- to tackle the big questions around let's take one example for national contract tracing how does that happen when you take a localized approach and throw it up into the uh, you know a national approach um what do you believe has been the biggest catalyst outside of the reaction to the global pandemic to actually allow this to happen um you know from not necessarily from a technology perspective but um once again answering the question why has it taken this scenario to all pull in the direction that we know so many people have been speaking of for many years around you know, a unified health approach to health in New Zealand? I think, um, yeah, in my experience in healthcare, and it you know, spans back quite a few years in, in uh, healthcare delivery as well, you know, in, in aged care and home-based care and in the community care uh, setting with disabilities, mental health and, and addiction and, and lots of lots of care delivery in between. Um, and coming into this role, which has you know, obviously got a technology focus, but not being a technologist myself, um, having that uh, kind of broader um, uh, experience of the health system, what we have seen happen is what we should expect to have seen happen, which was, you know, uh, I, I, I say Kiwis, but you know, because you know, we are talking about New Zealand, but you know, there is no doubt that that we as New Zealanders, when there is a clear uh, mission, with a clear vision, and there's there's in this case something that needs a fight. To defend ourselves against, yeah, that that's just broken down a whole uh, pile of of real and perceived barriers um, across the health sector, just simply to to um, fight the good fight, frankly. And you know, I think when your back's against the wall, uh, you you know, that's a measure of how people front up and and will be prepared to work together when in the past they weren't prepared to. And so we've seen this occur, and you know, a lot of us are saying long may that last um but with a caveat there that the risk is that it will it will fall back to what it was before once we feel comfortable again yeah 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 i mean and, and scott i've been i've been immensely proud as you know as not being a native kiwi myself but a brit that's been in the country for you know four or five years or so um, it's it's reinforced the reason why i you know i'm i moved the whole of my life to this part of the world mm-hmm. for that that kiwi mentality which you know what i what drew me here in the the first place and it is it is amazing to see the fact that the kiwi reaction to all pulling together and being part of the five million person team that's got us to this state um you know has been executed exceptionally well um you know to 9.999 percent of everyone following the rules and driving and driving that um until the mcdonald's opened until <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. about, uh, the roads around me, I've yeah, yeah. driving to get their fast food. Yeah, yeah exactly. It wasn't, yeah, I wasn't I, one of those. Oh yeah, I'm hoping, David, that yeah, sort of the, the the junk food outlets opening doesn't signal going back to 
<laughs> to the way it was. Yeah, I know. It's the canary in the coal mine, yeah. the big fat canary. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, yeah, let me also condition that in saying, well, you know, when I talk about New Zealanders or Kiwis or however, that that's whoever happens to be living in New Zealand, yeah. uh, staying, living permanently or, or not, um, right now through this whole thing, you know. Yeah, I'm proud and, and I also am thankful um, that I am in New Zealand you know, rather than some other countries. What's your what's both of your opinion? Just opens up to both of you. What's your opinions on how much our size as a country, only being you know just shy of five million of us, contributes to that? I guess accountability of doing the right the right thing, which we're not seeing in overpopulated other regions of the the world, where it feels that accountability is taken less seriously. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't buy into the size argument. I think that there's other dimensions of our nation our nationhood that that are having more of an impact than just the size because there's lots of 5 million people yeah. countries around the world and they're not having the same impact as us. I think, I mean, we're seeing, I think, the result of a couple of things. One is our remoteness. That's to our advantage at a time like this. You know, historically has been a challenge for us often, but right now is probably one of our single biggest advantages that we have a, a sea border and we can reasonably well protect ourselves. And then the second thing I'd say is that our national value system, which we don't talk about very much because it's a little bit sort of, you know, woo-woo and fluffy, but I actually think we should talk about it more. Our, our national values system is one of integrity and um, and there's a lot of sort of Māori um, values in there, of manakitanga, the way that we look after each other and welcome and make others better. And I think that, you know, at times like this, while the words not, might not ring true for everybody, the sentiment is really clearly there. So New Zealand for the last five weeks has been in the state of looking after ourselves and each other. I mean, it's manaki in its sort of purest form in, in many ways. And I think that, that's a, a national character that's been bred over the 230-odd years that we've been a nation. So I think we're benefiting from that and from our remoteness more than we are from just our size. Yeah, I guess yes. that. I think, I think we are seeing that that spirit that, that we know is there and we know it is there, um, but then it comes forward at times like these. Um, you know, probably the closest that any of us in this generation have come to it is sort of when we – you know, when we've got the All Blacks playing in the World Cup final and we kind of suddenly become, you know, a team of five million, um, mm. then, of course, we know the reaction when we don't win, but we also know how proud we all feel, when, you know, of that team when we do win. Um, you know, and that, you know, playing a game of rugby and fighting yeah. COVID are, you, yeah. are, are miles apart, but somewhere in between there is the spirit where we, you know, they, um, and I guess bringing it back to health, is you know in my experience, I mean, I've been in healthcare um, in New Zealand for about eighteen years, and and uh, there are some great divides. There are some some uh, um, silos. There's some echo chambers. There's some fragmentation. It, uh, they're all well known, and, and they've been around for a very long time. Um, and if people had held on to those over the last four weeks, we would have been in a much sorrier state. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and and I think that sums it up as really people were prepared to put their own sort of let's say agenda or their own personal kind of feelings of comfort to one side and go okay we've just got to get on here and make this happen because if we don't do this we're in deep deep trouble. Yeah, I think they're really good solid points because what I'm hearing is that there's a, there's just an accountability for your, yourself and there's an accountability for each other and I think possibly we are very strong in both of those camps. As opposed mm. to just being accountable for your own individual well-being, this is a this is a team sport, um, mm. and it feels like our history and our heritage, um, uh, you know, from 
how the whole of New Zealand has been made up since it's since it was you know brought onto the onto the map has has allowed us to give us a good level of gold class preparation. And this word gold class is being used quite a lot in terms of our ability to contact trace. And it feels like we've had that ability from our you know just the core the core grounding of who we are to have that gold class preparation to have the metal to fight, which is you know which is which is strong in itself. But let's just touch on the topic that you raised um, earlier on, David, around the recovery. And mm. making sure that we recover in a solid way that um, uh, doesn't necessarily exacerbate the divides in society that we naturally have as a human, you know, as a human society, and making sure that we enter with, you know, gold class preparation, gold class contract contract tracing, contract tracing, contract tracing, yeah, you'll get it, you know, yeah, 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 <laughs> I'll get there eventually. Um, and then what this means for um, getting to a point of recovery where we can close some of those divides as opposed to um, ex- yeah. exacerbate them yeah and I, and I think there's a there's a few real things there we, we you, this whole crisis is presenting us with risk and opportunity um you know we t- we're talking a lot about opportunity which is great um, the, the the danger that we, we stand on the precipice of some really risky decisions that we could make as a nation and individually which is to which is to become exploitative and revert back to sort of ways of working in, in kind of the crassest sense of commercialization, commercialism, sorry. You know, and, and, that, and that is things like making sure that at the end of this, we don't end up with uh, privileged people who are able to capitalize on opportunities that are now presenting themselves, you know, suddenly again, locking out those who don't have those opportunities. Um, we've also got to think about, for example, that we don't recover in such a way that we neglect our obligations to the planet, you know, New Zealand was on a is on a track around sustainability, and the worst case scenario here with you know cheap oil flooding the planet and mm-hmm. lots of motivations to move very quickly is for us to just to set aside all of the kind of the targets we had around carbon neutrality and and all these things and just sort of start you know machining and globally unfortunately that's that's likely to be the backlash and um, mm. you're going to see a big um you know while people have celebrated the fact that there might be dolphins or otherwise you know in venice yeah. I'm sure that's true i think it's apocryphal but anyway um the biggest danger is in a year's time we won't we'll see belching steam you know stacks of of um of, of all sorts of things so we've, we've really got a really risky thing and New Zealand's got a bit of a history here where we've got to be careful that we recover in a way that is sustainable and into the long-term benefit i mean I'm not blaming anyone, but look at Christchurch. The opportunity that happened after the Christchurch earthquakes was was amazing. I'd, I'd struggle to believe that we actually lived up to that opportunity and we were able to grasp it in a way that was overall, you know, kind of net productive. And I think we've got the same massive risk here globally and in New Zealand. What you does know? that look like, David, for, for <laughs> you in terms of um, – you, you know what actions can be taken differently from what you believe is happening now in central government around that recovery recovery plan and making sure that um, we have a balanced head on our shoulders in terms of economic recovery, but also you're right in terms of the um, the environmental recovery yeah. as well. You, you know, those large manufacturing processes do stimulate economic growth. We know that. Yeah. Um, and how do we control the pull between? economic recovery and dollars in the coffer versus actually accelerating other commitments that we've had around um, environment? Well, yeah, I mean, it's going to come down to leadership at, a, at an individual and a sort of a national level. And um, because, you know, what we're seeing at the moment, for example, I think is, is some of the best examples of leadership, you know, in New Zealand, you know, not just from the politicians, but from, you know, 
senior officials in government, from business leaders, from you know small business. We're seeing just people really stepping up and taking, uh, doing what they can to take responsibility and help. And I think we've just got to make sure that we keep that sort of aspect going as we as we get into the recovery phases. You know, what is the leadership stance we want to take? What's the clear level one, two, three, four equivalent of economic recovery? You know, can we create the same sort of guardrails and really clear language? And um, and can we then, as business people, collectively stick to it? Can we, as individuals, agree that we're going to have to make some personal sacrifice for greater gain? Mm-hmm. But you know, it's 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 this it's leadership. You know, for me, is is one of the the biggest elements. One one thing that sprung to mind when I was preparing to meet with you two gentlemen was um, I was reading an article around uh, Australia and New Zealand and how they're Viewed by or by viewed by some countries around the rest of the world as as an example to how to manage through these types of scenarios, which is an equation of geographical location, the ability to shut borders, and a whole hit piece. How much opportunity do you think that is there in actually New Zealand and Australia as kind of a compartmentalized piece of the world becoming, um, you know, t- taking taking more advantage from this whole scenario? that it benefits all of New Zealand than, you know, any other parts of the world where you're going to struggle to recover at the same pace that, that we can. And what, what could that look like in the course of the next, you know, two to three years? You want to go first, Scott? Um, yeah, I think uh, coming back to, I think it's, uh, the answer, my feeling on that is linked to also what David was saying just, just before that. Um, yeah, the opportunity, the, the risks are clear um, around the uh, access and equity divide mm-hmm. uh, go, yeah, becoming... Uh, rather than sort of a, um, a becoming a canyon sized, you know, like just uh, people who have access to data and and so forth and bandwidth and so on, being able to you know to take advantage of this um, virtual world that we launched launched ourselves into, um, and then and that world creates connectivity right across across the world, across around the globe. Uh, potentially in the future, you know, out into outer space. So, but then on the other side will be people who, you know, just, you know, can't get data, can't get uh, bandwidth and, you know, will be left behind uh, just as they already are in lots of respects around education and health and so and social care and so forth. So um, it, uh, virtual technology gives us an opportunity to, um, on one hand, the divide gets much wider, becomes a, a, a canyon or a chasm, um, but it has the opportunity to, to actually close it right up. Um, so that, that those decisions um, are going to be crucial over the next, I believe, mm-hmm. even three, three months. Um, the, the other part of it is around the environment, and, and uh, um, I'm getting a bit of a uh, sort of a shiver up my spine when I keep hearing um, coming out of the media, I'm sure, that this whole thing about shovel-ready projects. <laughs> and um, it can, it can, that does concern me. Um, I'd like us to be also talking about keyboard-ready projects. Um, so, and and there are some in health. You know, with the National Health Information Platform, which was a business case that went to cabinet not you know not long actually before the pan, pandemic struck. Now, I would hate to see that um, put on hold um, because of the response needed. You know, in fact, um, uh, getting that project underway. Uh, pulls together across the whole health system our our digital and and technology sort of um, streams I suppose you call it and platforms and and uh, infrastructure uh, and we would build something that I believe in and I'm you know I'm prone to exaggeration but if we think back to not that I was around uh, uh, well, I was around just I think uh, 
post-Second World War, um, one of the government's responses to get the economy going and uh, was to build dams. Mm -hmm. So all of the dams along the Waikato River were built as a result of, of uh, needing to get people to work, needing electricity, uh, needing to pump money into the economy. Um, and so build dams was sort of um, ticked a lot of boxes. So why wouldn't you do it, right? Um, now, of course, the economic impact on the Waikato River and all the you know, land around it or whatever, um, I don't know how much thought was put into that at the time. Um, as I say, I wasn't around. But we now all enjoy a heck of a lot of benefit because of those decisions. Now, you know, we've, we would think back now and go, gosh, isn't it great they built those dams? Um, I don't know whether we actually need to build any more roads. We might need to improve some more roads. Um, but we do need to ensure that what we've experienced in health just within this short period of time, that our IT infrastructure and the ability to share for data to flow where data is needed at any given point uh, in a secure and private manner, uh, that is absolutely crucial to us. And mm -hmm. if, if we don't do anything about that and don't take this opportunity in five years time if we had another of these pandemics hit us and if we were still scrambling around trying to figure out uh, what contact tracing app we were going to use then we we have failed our nation so so that that's my grand statement around that one uh that then leads me to the discussion about australia again you know we have we've been talking that we being a group of, of uh, across the Australian New Zealand Leadership Forum and Ministry of Health and the equivalent in Australia, we've been talking for too long about basically a health passport. And so the ability for Kiwis and Aussies to go back and forth and take our health record with us. Um, or And that's not physically uh, a filing cabinet of our record. That's mm -hmm. by, by digital means. Um, if something, if say, you know, a crocodile bites my leg off and, and uh, in upper Queensland, or we're at Northern Queensland, and, and I end up in a, in a, end up in an emergency department. What for good? Like in New Zealand and in Australia, um, the first, before they can treat me, hopefully if I'm still conscious, they're going to go through a whole tick list of asking me what my allergies are, what mm -hmm. what are my medications, because frankly they don't know, and and if they give me a medication that goes against what I'm already having, then it could kill me worse than lose, losing my leg. Mm. So, and similarly, if an Australian comes to New Zealand and, and breaks their leg on the in the ski fields and ends up in, a, in a, one of our hospitals, we won't know, um, unless they might be using an app of their own and they've, they've, they've actually written in their own details into their phone. Um, so again, we've got a huge opportunity, not only in terms of connecting up our whole IT infrastructure in New Zealand and health system, um, to do that with Australia and and actually you know it's not just about tourism anymore it's then we start to be able to share health health resources across the Tasman um, we, we then you know the, the the hospital that they're planning to build in, in Dunedin becomes a truly virtual um, hospital that can actually provide health services to someone in London um, you know when that when when they're asleep we're awake and 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 if we've got a 24-hour virtual care system going, we can provide and pay for a large part of our healthcare services um, through providing international care um, right across the planet. You know, those are the sort of things that that kind of excite me, but but kind of also frustrate me because unless we have some bold decision making, prepared to take some risks and invest in it, you know, we we may lose this opportunity. Yeah. 
Scott, one one thing I'm hearing come loud and clear from your your narrative is that you know as as um, as leaders in any of our industries um, or verticals that we're all empowered to take bold decisions and, and make the right moves um, in a health context, but also at a at a business context across you know any business leader that's listening to this. And there are there are many many people that we're listening to this who are accountable for budget and um, leadership of people, strategy um, across multiple sectors. And opening up a question to both of you. What would your plea be to these individuals in terms of how we go forward from here um, to support the upside and downside of what you spoke about today? Which individuals in particular are you talking about? I mean, that's that, that, well, the, I, that's it's, the danger of the them rather than the me. You know the, what I mean? the, yeah, no, I, I, I understand. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... As a, as a C-suite individual um, mm-hmm. and listening, listening to this podcast who can influence the direction of business at a strategy level about where investments are made, um, whether it's around policy or whether it's direction of a commercial commercial business, um, what would be the play in terms of what we do and what we don't focus on going into the course of the next five or 10 years worth of, of, of planning? Um, that's good. That, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I, and again, for me, again, it comes back to those things we mentioned earlier. You know, if you're in a position of leadership in any sense, and we all are, but, you know, in, in a business sense or in an organizational sense, then thinking about the, the what are the what's the sort of broad suite of responsibilities you have? Because it's not all about profit and bottom line. You know, we've known that for years. This is, you know, there's nothing new here. But but, but what what's new is we, we're seeing the result of, I think, rampant kind of um, capitalism and consumerism and realized that actually you know when the world has had to stop for six weeks we've all had to go home and sort of look after our physical health and realize that we are humans after all not um just worker units and uh and to to go back to that way of being of you know profit hungry and motivated um leaders would be would be very backward so i I would hope that leaders at the end of this are going to come up with a broad sweep of of things that that they look at and say, you know, so for example, how how do we get better workforce pay equity? Now that we've all realised that the most important people in our entire society were the supermarket checkout people and the nurses, you know, I mean, for God's sakes, yeah. they, weren't, they weren't the chief executives and they weren't the, you know, the, the titans of industry. Um, how do we how do we think about um, sustainable growth? Um, that's not just you know, short term profiteering or or speculating in property or whatever it might be. So. I would hope that you that people will come out of this and go right. Here's a new model for capitalism. Oh, God, this is getting really esoteric now. But you know, here's <laughs> a way of thinking about um, how to form a, a kind of a conscious capital society. And I'm not, you know, that wasn't something I was ever really spent much time thinking about before. I mean, I was aware of that kind of thinking, but it wasn't really me. And but now I'm much more aware of it. I, it, it it will impact the way I think about where I invest my money or my time, who I want to work for or with. You know, those sorts of things now are going to be quite important for me. And I'd imagine that's going to be true for me. Well, actually, this is quite fascinating because I feel like we've kind of come full circle in this dialogue. You Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier on, David, around, you know, that the Kiwi history is, and I think we kind of circled on this kind of gold class preparation. The Kiwi history has allowed us to be prepared for this scenario because of our ability to look after one and and each other and become that five million person person team. Um, Ultimately, we're deploying those values in, in, in every vertical, every business, it feels counterintuitive to com- the global commercial acumen of profiteering. But actually, 
it's beneficial to the overall commercial impact of the of the business anyway because you're looking after your people you're investing in society you're you are delivering back equally across your people your processes your technology and what you stand for and what you believe in and you're looking after each other but it's not tangible and that's probably the bit that people struggle with is the fact that it's not as it's not a dollar so therefore how do you actually measure it um, and manage risk against it but it is proven in in terms of what we've done around the the COVID-19 response that looking after the people first has led to a better result for everyone. Yeah. Um, and it's how do you get, how, how we get the trust in that methodology um, other than looking at the facts, I don't, I don't know. Um, and whether stock markets will see the same, the same approach to it, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I would encourage anybody to, to, um, to think long and hard about um, trusting the fellow looking after the, looking after the people and one each other is, is a better outcome than purely chasing the dollar. Yeah. I've seen too many examples of chasing dollar and not ending well. It goes back to the why thing you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the Stephen Sinek's why. What is our why? You know, for, me, for years we've been talking about the what, you know, the stock market or the money markets or profit. But the why here has been very clear. You know, we've, we've collectively made a massive decision that human life is the most important thing at the moment. That's why we've put the, you know, economic um, – economic future of the country and the world actually sort of to one side for a while and said let's concentrate on humanity so that so we've defined that already we you know we're collectively now we've got to follow through on that decision and say right well what does that mean in terms of how do we um as i say how do we measure success or incent um companies to do you know things that are more holistic than just profit yeah um scott from a from a health health perspective um Leaders, leaders in health and the, and the play to take actions actions for. Is there anything key that resonates with you about the message you'd want to land to um, your members and, and leaders within health? Well, I, you know, from my experience, you know, the, the sort of the fact that, you know, our nurses and, and doctors and orderlies and you know, in a hospital situation, all that, all the way through, you know, have, have become, you know, I've read in the press that talking about they've become the hero. Um, in fact, they they always were. They're always the hero. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, and you know, when I was you know running um, yeah, the home based care business that I was involved in, um, and, you know, we've had five and a half. You know, I had five and a half thousand staff, and and the majority of those were were home care workers that went into people's homes every day um, to help, whether it was elderly, um, disabled, or injured. Um, people to to enjoy a better life for the period of time, and they when people um, need healthcare, um, and David will resonate with this, so, uh, of course. But when when you need healthcare for whatever reason, you become vulnerable. You 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 feel vulnerable, uh, and even if that's you, know, you might have the flu, or you might have a sore toe, or you know, um, God forbid, you, know, you you have cancer. Um, at whatever point that you require someone else to help you because of your health. Um, uh, or your your social situation, then you you become vulnerable and you feel vulnerable. Then uh, the question becomes: Who do I trust to look after me or to provide my care? Uh, and then that's the big question. And we used to, um, I used to, or used to say, I still say, um, so home care workers going into other people's homes every day to do to provide care to people who have trusted them to go into their own home. At a time when they're the most vulnerable in their lives, mm. um, those are the you know those are the people that we've got to look at now because also they are they are on the minimum wage most of them you know, even though the minimum wage has gone up um, and I also still say that they see our most vulnerable people 
more often than anyone else in the health system every day. Yeah, and, and I used to, used to also say to to GPs and clinicians and so forth, I've got a workforce of 5,000 plus people who who are observing vulnerable people every day and they see shifts in their health and mental health and whatever and then their housing arrangements quicker than anybody else in the system. Yet we have no way for them to be recognised as having the ability to, to, to make an observation. Um, you have to be a registered medical professional before your observation would be taken seriously. So um, now where am I heading with that? I've gone off the tri- I've gone off piste a little bit here. <laughs> um, so what I would, you know, again coming back to that esoteric discussion, you know, um, uh, we've we've got to actually uh, value those people in society that do those jobs in a much different way, and it's not just about money. Mm. You know that um, if if for a lot of the people who used to work for me providing home care, um, you could po- you could pay them another five dollars an hour, and they'd be really happy with that, and they would feel a bit more valued. Uh, there would be a tipping point where they would um, they would keep doing the work even if you paid them five dollars less, because mm. they it's more about the caring for vulnerable people than than the, how much they're getting paid. Um, and if you value them in the right way, uh, then then they will. You know, they, I'm not saying you you know, you've got to you know, honour them and value them with, with the right level of uh, pay, yeah. that becomes uh, a profit driver, um, or not, doesn't it? So we, you know, we've uh, in our public health system, it's nearly all fully taxpayer funded. And my question there would be, and it links back to David, is David's points is, are we spending the taxpayer money in the health system or education system, but in this case, health? Uh, are we prioritising it in the right way? And, and I don't think we are. And I think then we get the behaviours that we've had in the past that temporarily have been put aside to fight this fight. And and I and I think the opportunity there is some big decisions to be made around how how we sh- we shift that thinking and and the way people are valued. Um, yeah. Uh, to, yeah, to to drive some some behaviour change. Yep, amen, amen to that. I think what Scott, you've just poured through there for me is that we've we've seen throughout this whole podcast today. Um, examples of um, a balanced behavior between commercial people um, and the right thing to do depending on the right scenario and what you've articulated that is right on the root the ground the grassroots of that Scott with the individuals that are deploying at healthcare and that how they how they perceive value value through satisfaction of doing your role and giving um, and supporting you know the the people that they're caring for and then also balancing off between needing to pay the rent which is ultimately you know the commerce element of it um mm. gentlemen um it's been a fa- fascinating 30 minutes um speaking to you today um i just wanted to on behalf of everyone listening thank you very much for you for your for your time always a pleasure as it was a couple of weeks ago david for, <laughs> for your you. time coming to speak to us well, well, we were very serious and uh, uh, over there we should we probably should have been lightened up a bit but you know so, this is a big topic and, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Right hey, look, well, thank you Blame the MC. That's what I say, Dave. Blame the, blame the, yeah. um, gentlemen, thank you very much so much for your time. Um, for everyone listening at home and on online, um, this for any more information on this podcast, please visit us at umbrellaconnect.com or umbrella.com for further information. Um, we will post alongside this all information relating to the bios of the lovely gentleman that you've been speaking to today. Um, thank you very much for your time. Um, speak soon, gentlemen. Farewell. Yeah.